0: For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. Now let's join Pastor Jeremy for today's message.
1: Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, let me invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, I am excited to bring you this word this morning. Uh, This is a very pivotal moment in the life of the history of the church. And as you know, we've been walking through uh, acts and being reminded both of what the mission is and the fact that the mission continues, uh, that even covid is no uh, threat ultimately to the gospel. Praise the Lord. Uh, The gospel goes on. The mission goes on. The church will continue because Jesus is building his church and by his Holy Spirit, he is bringing about the completion of His kingdom and the salvation of the lost. So we praise the Lord for that this morning. And so what we're seeing throughout the book of Acts is both the resistance to the gospel along with the resilience of the gospel and the church in response to it. So these two things over and over kind of vying for position and always the gospel wins out because the mission goes on. It has for over 2000 years and praise the Lord this morning. You who are here or listening online, who know Jesus as Lord and Savior, you know, because someone preached the gospel to you because the mission goes on and the Bible says the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. Praise God. Nothing can stop the gospel. Amen. Amen. And so here again in our passage, we see yet another threat to the gospel and we see again the resilience of the church. And this is quite lengthy. This morning we're going to read most of chapter 15. This is known as the Jerusalem Council. Uh, So if you are unable, we understand. But if you are able, we would encourage you to stand together in honor of the reading of God's word as we begin together at Acts chapter 15 and verse one. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider the matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you. we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as if or just as it is written as uh, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders And troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell the same things by by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements: that you abstain from what is sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what was what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you yourselves from these, if you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and, having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch teaching and preaching the word of the Lord and uh, the word of the Lord with many others also. Let's pray. Lord, I pray this morning that as we look to your word, that we would see this story clearly, both in its original significance and its contemporary relevance. Lord, I pray that you would convict our hearts, that by your Holy Spirit, you would teach us to obey all things in your word, that you would draw the lost to salvation and that you would be glorified in this place as your word is proclaimed. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. So the background of chapter 14, especially if you've not been here, chapter 15, rather, is incredibly important, especially as we finish up chapter 14 and see the tail end of the chapter. Of course, we know that Paul and Barnabas and the others were there at Antioch of Pisidia, and they were proclaiming the name of the Lord there. There was an incredible resistance from the Jews there. And we see proclaimed in a very strong way that, that, that the gospel was not only meant for the Jews, it was meant for the Gentiles, not only from the beginning of the New Testament, but even from the Old Testament. Isaiah foretold that the, that the, the, the people of Israel would be a light to the Gentiles. This was their mission. And this is a mission that they lost sight of, a resistance that began to develop. And when you get to the end, they go back to Antioch, the original Antioch where the church was established there and verse 27 of chapter 14 tells us that when they arrived and gathered the church together, listen to what it says. They declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So this this news that God was opening the hearts of the Gentiles to receive Christ, to, to be saved And verse 28 says that they remained no little time with the disciples. There was a a celebration and a a reverence and an awe that was happening because God was leading the Gentiles to faith in Jesus Christ. And in chapter 15, verse uh, 3, we get the same picture again. So as they hear of this thing, we'll come back to this resistance, but as as they hear of what's going on in Jerusalem and they start the trip, verse 3 says, being sent on their way by the church... They passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria. And what did they do? They described in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. It's all they can talk about is they're on their way even to Jerusalem. They're telling this story. People are being saved. People are being saved. All of these Gentiles are coming to faith in Jesus. Jesus. The story doesn't stop there. The testimony doesn't stop there. They get to Jerusalem and in verse 4 it says that when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church. Very, very important that we understand who they're coming to. This isn't the, the lost world. They're coming to the church in Jerusalem and the apostles and the elders and what did they declare? All that God had done with them. They don't say Gentiles there, but it's the same message again and again. What was God doing? He was saving the Gentiles. And the message resounds to us again today. And that is that the gospel is unstoppable. No matter how much resistance rises against the church, the gospel keeps going forward, particularly to people who have never heard the name of Christ, to Gentiles this is huge here that you see it's Gentiles specifically, but we'll come back to that in a second. So what about the conflict? What is the resistance here in Acts chapter 15? Well, fifteen one really sets the context sets the conflict in place for us, doesn't it? But some men came down from Judea, not down as far as north, south, but down as far as elevation. They come down from Judea. And we're teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. They're teaching them that in order for you to be saved, you have to not only trust in Jesus, but you also have to be circumcised. And in very important word, according to the custom of Moses, you must be Circumcised. We see it again in verse five. But some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees here, the entire group of people that have gone from Antioch to Jerusalem, the entire group of people there are in this kind of debate over the question. And someone rises up, some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, verse five, rose up and said it is necessary to circumcise them. And to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now, if we, if we look at this theologically, this is heretical, is it not? It's a works-based salvation. The only way that we can be saved is through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? It's the only way we can be saved. And so whenever they say, no, you've got to be circumcised too, it is in fact heresy in the church. But they're not seeing it in those terms. In fact, they're seeing it, notice the word again, according to the custom. They're seeing it as customary. How we usually do this, Paul, is they're circumcised. Paul, that's how we've always done it. They've always been circumcised. Hear this. There is a very real danger in any church. No matter the age of the church and no matter the age of the members for sacredly held traditions to become equal or greater in authority to biblical truth. Let me say that to you again. No matter the age of the church, no matter the age of the members, no matter how entrenched we are in particular customs or traditions, it is possible and dangerously possible for churches to elevate Sacred, uh, sacredly held traditions, things we've always done the way we've always done it to elevate that to the level of or even greater than the authority of biblical truth. And so we gain that picture there, but we gain even more clarity as the story goes on. The story is that when they heard this, they they got up a delegation of people. Paul, Barnabas, others, probably most of the apostles at this point, others may be going along for the journey. They leave all along the way. They're declaring this good news that God is saving Gentiles. They get to Jerusalem. And the reason they go to Jerusalem is in order to entertain this question. To challenge this question, to debate this question, because you cannot allow false teaching to continue in the church. It will absolutely destroy the church It will destroy the gospel within that church. Not only will it destroy the witness of the truth, but it will lead many of uh, many of the people that hear it astray. It's great. It's great danger. And so they go to contend for the faith is what they're doing. And they get to Jerusalem and someone stands up in Jerusalem and says, hey, you know what? They need to be circumcised. Paul, what's what's wrong with you? You're a Pharisee. You should know this. This is what should happen. There's a great conflict there, and Paul has to be there and this 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 rise up against this question. But it's more for them than just the question of works. It's a question of what they've always done. It harkens back, doesn't it, to Acts chapter 13. Do you remember the conflict there whenever they come to Jerusalem? Or rather, they come to Antioch of Pisidia and they begin to proclaim the gospel there at Antioch. And what is the problem in the synagogue? These Gentiles are hearing it. There's an uprising against Gentiles coming to faith in Christ. And they actually reject the teaching. And Paul goes on to proclaim to the Gentiles. Verse 46, this is chapter 13. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And then he quotes from Isaiah. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Well, here's here's what happens in chapter 15. The same problem that was going on in Antioch of Pisidia among lost Jews is now happening within The church where there are saved Jews. He's got a problem. The story is given even greater detail if you go to some of Paul's writings and even to James. Galatians chapter 2. Paul is recounting his journey there. And he says, after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Listen to what he says. I went up because of revelation because of a revelation and set before them, by the way, though, privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who is with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was Greek. Yet because of the false brothers seek because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom. This is describing the story that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery to them. We did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed influential. What they were makes no difference. And listen to what he says here. It's very interesting God shows no partiality. I would he even bring that up. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised. Here's the problem. When they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he had worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to circumcise to the circumcised. Worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Why? For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So so Paul's giving us a little bit of insight as to what's going on here. Here in in Jerusalem, it's not just the issue of their teaching false things, but the issue is they see a, a distinction between the circumcised and the uncircumcised. And they're saying, you know, we're going to deal with ministry to the circumcised. You deal with those other people. And even Peter was saying, you know, I'm willing to go to the Gentiles, the uncircumcised. But after he feared Those of the circumcision party, he said, and I'm not going to go to them anymore. He drew back. What's happening? There's a there's a resistance to this other people. Because we are the Jews, we hold the highest position before God, we're the chosen of God and we have all of our traditions and listen carefully If you don't adhere to these traditions, then you're on the outside. You're separate. And someone else will have to go to you. But we'll continue ministering to the circumcision. This is why when you begin to read James, who was the leader at the church at Jerusalem, you start to understand why he talks so much about partiality. He talks so much about about judging. He talks so much about all of these relational kinds of sins. Why? Because that's exactly what was happening at Jerusalem. In a word, they were uncomfortable with the new normal. All of these people coming to faith in Christ were changing what church was as they knew it. Oh, it wasn't unbiblical at all. It wasn't out of step with the gospel at all. They just simply had never done it that way before. Again, of course, the issue is works based salvation, but they're not viewing it that way. They're seeing it as customs. And so here is what is happening. Tradition of the Jews is threatening the mission of Christ. And a choice had to be made were they going to adhere to their tradition and forfeit their part in the mission of God? Or were they willing to see the truth of the gospel as superior to their tradition and therefore the mission of God as more urgent than keeping all of their traditions? And so that's the question that's before us, is it not? So we come to this text, the same choice that we have today. Will we choose our traditions or will we choose God's mission? Tradition or mission? It's a very real danger for us to elevate tradition to the level of authority that the Word and the Gospel has, or even to put it above where we're willing to ignore the Great Commission for the sake of keeping our traditions. And here's the reality. Every time we elevate our traditions to the same or greater authority than the Bible, we actually slide, sl- slide subtly into a legalistic, works-based gospel that does not save. I'm convinced that one of the reasons, not the only reason, But one of the reasons why there are scores of people who grew up in the church in America and fell away is because so many of them were never saved. Many of those who fell away from the church, quote unquote, over the last 15 to 20 years, grew up in a very traditional church. Those traditions in and of themselves are not necessarily Bad unless they're raised to the authority of the word. And in many churches, they have become equal in authority with the word. And so many of our children either grew to hate the tradition or just simply avoided traditionalism altogether and left the church. And I want you to hear me say very clearly this morning, tradition does not have any power to save anybody. The church and what we do and how we carry out our faith has no ability to save anybody. Only Jesus can save. Amen. Amen. The truth of the gospel must be guarded. And if that's going to happen, you and I must keep a very loose grip on all of our traditions. changes the question that we ask. When we're trying to make ministry decisions and what we do as a church, programmatically, missionally, what have you. We're no longer asking the question, how have we always done it? Or how did our parents do it? We're asking the question, what's it going to take? All under the authority of the word, not arguing that we walk away from the word, not arguing that we walk away from the gospel, But with the mission firmly seated upon our hearts, there are many things that we should and sometimes must be willing to loosen our grip on in order that the mission of God might go forth. And God never commanded the Gentiles to be circumcised. He commanded them to repent and believe the gospel. It's the same command that we have today. You know, COVID has done many things in our world. It's changed a lot about our world, hasn't it? But it's also changed a lot about the church. It's amazing to me. I've been on several conference calls, at least at least monthly, sometimes multiple times a month with our area leaders, many pastors from across our panhandle and uh, many even across uh, other places. Um, our, Our Southern Baptist leadership is a state convention, the Florida Baptist Convention. I keep hearing the same thing from many of these pastors and many of these convention leaders, and it's this so many churches who are not willing to entertain any kind of other ideas outside of their normal tradition, churches who would never have dreamed of an online ministry, churches who would never do things differently than they've always done it. All of the sudden, when COVID hit, guess what they were willing to do? Change. Change. You see, the problem, listen to me carefully, the problem is not that we don't like change. The problem is that we don't feel the pain and the urgency of the mission enough to change. You see, when we realize the lostness around us, when we discover the brokenness around us, and when we get a supreme view of God and His glory and His gospel, then we're willing to loosen our grip on all of the things that don't matter as much as we thought they mattered and tighten our grip on the word and make the gospel known, whatever it takes. At the heart of this conflict, Peter, by the way, who's always the spokesperson, I love Peter. I'm kind of like Peter, put my foot in my mouth before I think really. But this is Peter and he he stands up and he says, well, let me speak out here. Especially considering he's the one that shrank back, right? We know that from Paul. And he is the one that becomes the the spokesperson. Verse 6 tells us that the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, (laughs) sounds like a Baptist business meeting, Peter stands up and he says, i tell you what we'll do. (laughs) Let, Let me speak about this matter. Because church here at Jerusalem, we need to deal with this subject. And I would say to you that we need to do the same thing, because the fact of the matter is that even churches who are contemporary or modern in their approach can become entrenched in contemporary and modern traditions before we know it. So what is it that we need to hear from the Lord? If we are going to let tradition bow the knee to biblical truth and gospel mission, if that's going to become Secondary, not even really secondary to become third order. How is it that we can let the gospel reign supreme? The mission be the thing that we are after? Well, what Peter does is he gives us really four things that should characterize the church in order to guard that in order to guard that. So what are those four things that he tells the church? Number one, he tells the church that we must be convinced that we have a God given responsibility to preach the gospel to all people. We've got to be convinced of that. I mean, convinced of it. I'm not saying we got to be able to quote Matthew 28. I think everybody can quote Matthew 28, 19 and 20 or Acts chapter one, verse eight. I think probably at this point, as much as I've said it, we all know it by heart, right? We can read it on a page. But isn't there a difference between reading something on a page and actually obeying it with our lives? Isn't there a difference? And so what Peter says to the church is, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe the gospel. It was made a choice, probably describing the choice of Peter in the early days being set apart to be the spokesperson and to preach the gospel. But he was only doing what the rest of the church was commanded to do and leading out in doing so. Preach the gospel. What is the gospel? The Bible says that Jesus Christ Christ. Lived a perfect sinless life, the one that you and I could not live. He went to the cross to die a sinner's death, the one that you and I deserved. He died in our place in order that he might receive the due penalty of our sin, the wrath of a holy God. The condemnation of God Jesus received upon Himself. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And what happens is Jesus exchanges our, our filthiness, our sinfulness, for His righteousness, and we stand before God justified, declared forgiven, and set free of our sin. We're born again and given a new heart to love the things of God. And in Jesus' resurrection, we are eternally Set free from death. Jesus conquered our death. Even when we die, we will live forever. And we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. This church is the gospel. And it is the good news of salvation to anyone who believes. To the Jew first. And then, praise God to us. To the Gentiles. It's the gospel. And it must be preached to every creature. And so, we must believe that. We must believe that it is good news. Friend, you will never be convinced about preaching the gospel if you're never convinced of the gospel yourself. You can never make disciples if you're not a disciple. You can never call someone to be born again if you've never been born again. And so if you've never trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the invitation of God's word this morning is that you would trust in Christ, believe upon Christ because there is no other way to be saved. Apart from Jesus you cannot be saved. But praise God that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the good news of the Bible. And so we believe that. We must believe that with all of our hearts and friends when we believe that, brother, sister in Christ, when you believe that you have no other no other alternative and and there is a compelling uh, a compelling urgency inside you from the Holy Spirit to go and make that gospel known. The love of Christ should compel you to proclaim it. He says that God made that choice of Peter. It wasn't just simply something he could maybe obey. He had to obey. This was the command of God. How many of you know this morning that the Great Commission is, the, is a great commandment? <laughs> something we're supposed to do. That's not just me. That's not just our deacons. That's the whole church. We started praying this year, right? For a harvest of souls. We started praying for God to bring the lost to faith in Christ. Because that's it's the only hope of the world is Jesus. Well, we have to also be faithful to take the good news to them. To preach the gospel. Proclaim it. We must put feet to it. Because it's God's command. But I can't convince you of that. You must be convinced. It's the Holy Spirit that must convince you that this is true. And not just to some people, but to all people, the Gentiles, to preach the gospel to all people, cross culture, no matter their skin color, no matter their race, no matter their language, no matter their cultural differences. We are called to take the gospel to all nations. We do that, of course, through missionaries and we go and we give and we pray call in our lives. Some of you may even this morning be wrestling with the decision to follow Jesus and go to some foreign people group or some other area of our nation on mission. Romans 10 says, how can they hear unless they have a preacher? We got to proclaim the gospel. I'm convinced that if the church would open their mouths and preach the gospel, that we would have one of the greatest revivals this nation has ever seen. If If we just be obedient, But I can't convince you the Holy Spirit of God has got to do that, which leads us to the second thing that Peter tells the church. We must be convicted by God's spirit of the unity of the church in the gospel. Holy Spirit's got to move us. Verse eight and God who knows the heart. Do you know that God already knows your heart? It's not even the words you say, the actions you do. God already knows the intent of your heart. (laughs) It's an amazing thing. There's nothing hidden from the Lord. And it says, God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us. He knew those Gentiles were sinners. He also knew the Jews were sinners. And just like the Jews, he sent to the Gentiles the Holy Spirit to bear witness to them. And there is one church. We are made one both by our great need for Christ." And God's great action in Christ. Praise God. There's not a person on the planet that is beyond need of salvation. In fact, Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. And he planted church after church after church after church. We all are sinners, all in need of salvation. And the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus has offered his blood so that anyone can be saved. It is a universal offer to all people. Come and believe the gospel. And when we come together, we are one church. That means that within this one church, it's not our traditions that we hold on to, but rather the gospel that we hold on to. And sometimes in order to be one church, some of those traditions have to live and some of those traditions have to die. Because whatever we do, we do it well in order to make much of the gospel and to be obedient to the word. It's great unity in the church. It's not a you reach the uncircumcised and you reach the circumcised. It's let's reach the world together for Christ. United in our need, and united in the provision. Ephesians 4, if we had time, is such an incredible picture of the unity of one God, one gospel, one faith. One church, we must be convicted of that and let every tradition bow the knee. Number three, Peter says to the church, we must be careful, be careful, church, to resist any temptation to add anything to the gospel. I'm going to tell you the temptations are subtle. And we have in our day added things to the gospel if we're not careful There are some big, big things on the horizon that are not the gospel right now. They're being argued that those things are gospel centered things and they are not the gospel. The gospel informs our ethic. The gospel informs our politics. The gospel informs our economics. But the gospel is Jesus Christ crucified and all of those other things fall in line to the gospel. And so we must be careful no matter how deceptive it might be at what we add to the gospel. He puts two problems here. He says, verse 10, now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? You're adding something to it. There's two problems with that. Number one, you're putting God to the test. The same resistance of God we see throughout this book. When you add to the gospel, you are resisting God. In other words, you're testing God's patience. It's an Old Testament motif. Do you remember? Whenever Moses went up to Mount Sinai, the people were left there real quick in the valley. And there at the base of the mountain, they make this golden calf. They begin to worship because their leader had disappeared. Their God, they fought with him. And God saw everything. (laughs) And this people again and again did the same thing. Resisted God, and he is saying to the same people, you're testing God's patience. The second reason, because you're putting on them an impossible burden, they cannot bear it. You're giving an impossible yoke that he says, watch this, you nor your fathers were able to bear. None of you could do this, yet you expect them to do it. It's the fact of the matter. Any legalistic kind of approach to the gospel puts us in a position that we could never bear because we can't keep the law. The law is our tutor to bring us to Christ, and the only way that we begin to obey the law is a new heart. And then even then, it's not legalism, it's it's obedience. Which leads us to the fourth and final. It's okay that we have traditions. The problem is when we give them moral authority, because that becomes legalism and what Peter wants the church to know is number four, we must be committed to the grace of God in the gospel and our common need for it. We've got to be committed to that. We've got to be committed to the gospel and the grace of God in it and our common need for it. It's much easier to go to the worst of sinners when you realize that you are the worst of sinners, isn't it? It's much more humbling to go to someone who spent their lives in some sort of sinful rebellion. When you realize that were it not for the grace of God, there go you. They're in as much need and of God's grace as you are. He says in verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. We must guard grace. We must guard it. Grace is God's initiative In our salvation. It's our need for God's help. In all things. And certainly in salvation. We don't have any breath without Him. We don't have any life without Him. We don't pursue righteousness without Him. We're not justified without Him. We're not called without Him. We're not redeemed without Him. We're not forgiven without Him. It's God's grace. We do not have a gospel in which tradition aids in any way. We have a gospel that saves sufficiently. It doesn't need anything else. Let me just throw this one out to you. We argue about a lot of things like building and carpet color and seating and all those other things. Do you know we don't even need a building for Jesus to save somebody? We are the temple of the Lord Jesus. We are the temple of His Holy Spirit. The dwelling place of Almighty God. And Jesus saves and Jesus alone saves. We have a gospel of grace and we must be committed to that. So how's the story end? I hate a hanging ending, don't you? I don't know how it ends. Well, the church decides through James, stands up. Let's write a letter. Let's tell them that they're in good shape. We'll lay off of them. We won't, we won't bother them anymore about not being circumcised. We'll just leave them alone we'll command them to do this list of things that they came up with. And we don't have time to unpack that list, but we'll command them basically to obey the Bible and we'll leave them alone about the circumcision issue. But you know what happens? It's interesting that Jerusalem never really becomes a vital force in the mission movement of God. Never. They send them about their way to do the Gentile work while they continue to stay there. And they're full of fighting. They're full of, of, of bitter talking toward one another. You see, all those issues come up in James, don't you? All this infighting. Why? Because they lost sight of the mission of God. Galatians 2 shows us that. The church at Jerusalem had a choice. Either choose their tradition or choose the mission. And you know what they chose? Tradition. But Antioch, this is the tale of two churches. Antioch chose the mission. And you know what happened from Antioch? Three different missionary movements where God sent out people to proclaim the gospel. And even to the uttermost parts of the earth at the time, Rome, because they chose the mission. Clarkston Baptist Church was a little Southern Baptist Church, the outskirts of Atlanta. At the time, whenever Clarkston was established, it was just a farming community, very, very small. And Clarkston Baptist Church in 1883, really before the founding of the Southern Baptist Convention, this church forms. For most of its history, Clarkston remained a, a town of mostly white people, um, relatively moderately living farmers. And Clarkston had this church. That that people would come to and and eventually the church even grew to nearly 600 people. But around 2000, the church began to decline pretty significantly because moving in back in the 70s, back in the 70s, something changed in Clarkston. Developers began to build apartment complexes for more middle class, middle class workers as Atlanta, Atlanta began to grow, the airport was put into place and all of them wanted to live there in Clarkston. After some time, it began to there began to be a problem in the 90s. All of these apartment complexes were empty because everybody was moving back into Atlanta. They couldn't stand the traffic anymore. In the 1996, a group of people who, who were caring for political refugees identified Clarkston as a place where they could put all of these refugees because there are all these empty apartment complexes. And so over the course of 1996 to 2001, over 19,000 political refugees were brought into the Clarkston area. Roughly, at the time, 52 different nationalities. This little, white-skinned, white-haired Southern Baptist church had a decision to make. Were they going to love their tradition or were they going to love the mission? Here's a quote from one of the older members. He said, We realized that what the Lord had in store for the old Clarkston Baptist Church was to transition into a truly international church and to help minister to all these ethnic groups moving into the county. They chose the mission. Now there was a debate, there was a council. There was an argument. There were cross words said. But at the end of the day, they had a choice to make. And in 2004, the church made the decision to merge with the Filipino International Bible Church. It is a both a Filipino and Nigerian congregation to create Clarkston International Bible Church, CIBC. It's been growing multi ethnic, multicultural, multi generational, ever since I had the opportunity to visit the church. It's an amazing thing that is happening there. At the time when I was there, which is some number of years ago, over fifteen hundred people joining every Sunday, seven different multi ethnic, multilingual congregations. Today it is a congregation of more than fifteen countries houses congregations of Ethiopians, Sudanese, Liberians, French West Africans as well. They worship separately. And there's one congregation that meets together that's the multi uh, multi-ethnic congregation. You can imagine potlucks look a little different. African stews, Asian vegetable dishes, and then of course hot dogs and sweet tea and apple pie. All of our traditions. Every one of our traditions must bow the knee to biblical truth and gospel mission. The only question that remains for us is how will it end for us? Have you thought about it? How will it end for us? How will the story be told? It is in fact a a question of surrender. Will we submit in every way to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Would you bow your heads this morning? My prayer for you and for us this morning is that as we hear this word, that we would be warned and encouraged. Because... We've gone through this journey, haven't we? We've experienced the challenge of tradition. And here we are. And the gospel keeps going. But may we take that as both a warning and an encouragement. Not to ever let even our new traditions become more important than the gospel. Because there is nothing greater than the gospel of Christ. Some of you here this morning need to be reminded of that. Because whatever is going on in your life, you're letting consume you and drive you to anxiety and worry and fear and bitterness and anger and frustration and whatever else. But the gospel reigns supreme over that. Jesus can heal you from all of those things. And Jesus is sovereign over all things. And the good news of salvation today is for all people. So you need to be reminded that God is on His throne. There may even be someone here this morning who's never believed the gospel. Never been born again. You bought into church tradition. And church tradition doesn't save you. You need Jesus. You need to repent of your sins. And put your faith in Christ. And to be saved today. And the Bible says that if you will call upon the name of the Lord right now, today, you'll be saved. To repent of your sins is to turn from them, to not only have a change of mind and a change of life, but literally a change of heart where you no longer love those things, but you begin to love the things of God. You need to be born again in order for that to happen to you today. You repent and put your faith in Christ. Surrender to Jesus Lordship in your life. So with every head bowed, every eye closed in just a few moments, we're going to stand together and we're going to have a time of invitation, time of response simply means that this altar is going to be open. There'll be a place for you to come and pray if you want to spend some time before the Lord this morning. Maybe you need to turn from some area of your life that's just not been in alignment with God's word and you need to obey him today. he's he's leading you to that and you need to obey him today. Or maybe maybe you need to be born again today. I'll be here down front. There's others who'd be willing to pray with you. If you just simply come today, step out of the place where you've been standing, where you've been sitting, and say, today, Jesus, I surrender. Come down this aisle. Say, Pastor, will you help me? And today I'll help you. You just tell me what God is doing in your heart. And I'll lead you in the Word. And Jesus will do the saving. Would you stand with me all across the room? Lord, we pray today that you would have your way in our hearts and that we would be obedient to the faith. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Even as Stephanie begins to play, the altar is open. You come this morning.
0: You've been listening to the Southwide Baptist Church podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com we also invite you to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram by searching for Southwide BC. Thank you for listening, and may you continue to worship, connect, and grow, and multiply as you follow Jesus Christ.